heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. What is the left doing to America? My America. Our America. Let's talk about it. But first, allow me, with hand over heart, to say... I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Now, probably like you, I've I've said this pledge every morning through all my parochial grade school years and my public high school years and through my undergraduate and graduate years. In fact, I say it every day, sometimes twice a day. While I'm walking, while I'm out driving, it crosses my mind. And I'm worried. I'm worried whether this pledge is going to prevail over time, particularly in terms of what cancer culture is attempting to do. I suppose that this is outlandish, but I can imagine this pledge changing in a direction that neither of us would like. For instance, what if it read, I pledge allegiance to Karl Marx and to the government run by socialists, one borderless nation under dictators, highly divisible, with no liberty but special social justice for all. Hello, hello. My name is Daniel Francis Baranowski, and I'm your host today. I'm sitting in today for Malcolm on the Voice of the Nation on the America Out Loud radio network. Today I want to talk with you about cancel culture and its outlandish twin, censorship. Cancel culture is rewriting our history. Particularly, it's telling us lies about race in America. Every day the left adds some other part, some other purposeful narrative that says, we're bad, America's bad, uh, America's not exceptional, America must admit its sins and make reparations to injured parties. At first, you know, this stuff on the left was rather subtle. Yet, consciously, they knew they were being dishonest with their words and phrases. They lead us astray to perpetuate lies and disinformation. Today, though, the subtleness is gone as far as cancel culture is concerned. So, is the left canceling culture? Or are they canceling people? Or are they canceling both? What's the purpose of cancel culture? Is it to make us all better, to all realize the sins of our past? Well, as I see it, cancel culture is simply the application of fear to politics. And hasn't, isn't that what we've been seeing now for the last, certainly, 40, 45 days or so, about the use of fear, the use of fear through the pandemic, and the, the, the use of fear through censorship and cancellations? So despite all other parts of our economy and our cultural activities that have been shut down by Democrats because of, of COVID, one thing that's been growing and more noticeable every day is cancel culture. I've come to call it cancer culture. 
It's a malignancy that's spreading and growing every day, and we're allowing the left to push us around with their words and censorship. But before we go any further, allow me to, to introduce myself. I've been a lifelong conservative. I've kept a keen eye on national politics since my days as an undergraduate at the University of Arizona during the late stages of the Vietnam War. Currently, I'm a retired teaching fellow from the Department of Health Policy and Management at the Harvard University School of Public Health, which is in Boston. Among other interests, I'm a longtime student of the American Civil War. I'm also a trained observer of American life through my work on healthcare surveys and focus groups. Yogi Berra said that you can, you can see an awful lot by just watching, and I have found that to be very true. Frankly, I'm perplexed. Uh, I ask you to think along with me as I'm going to talk today about what your understanding and experience with cancel culture has been. I'm going to review the left's use of language as it shapes our national discourse, our national discussion about life, about history, about politics. I'm also going to talk about how we're being encouraged by the mainstream media and the left to think and talk to each other. I want to talk to you also about our growing uncivil discourse, our incivility, especially around issues of race in America. And I want to get to the left's use of language to control us. Now, perhaps some of what I'm about to say will hit a chord with your experiences these past four years. And I'd like to limit this to the last four years. I am deeply disturbed and very concerned about today's ubiquitous brand of cancel culture. Ubiquitous, a word meaning it's everywhere. It's sort of like action news, it's everywhere. In tackling this, let's start with the desecration of history by cancel culture. Yogi Berra said the future ain't what it used to be. That seems to be certainly true from my perspective. George Orwell, another fellow that's widely quoted today because of his book 1984, which many see awful lot of parallels with today's activities. George said, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. So who do you think controls the present? Well, the left is making a play to control the present because they're attempting to rewrite our past, to retell our history. The left's cancel culture, I think, was kicked off in recent times by what happened in Charlottesville, Virginia. You may remember that. That's where Donald Trump said you had some very bad people in that group, but you also had some very fine people on both sides. Supposedly, this was one of the things that forced Joe Biden to reconsider running for the presidency. He wasn't going to run, but when he thought back to Charlottesville, he was motivated to run for the presidency because of what Trump said at Charlottesville. I, I don't know if anyone still remembers what the issues were in Charlottesville. They weren't about the people on whose side they were and everything else. Tragically, a young woman was killed in what happened in Charlottesville. But the issue was really around the removal of a a statue of a Confederate general, General Robert E. Lee. Now, that's, that statue had stood there in the city park since 1924. I'm not sure what motivated them to erect it in the first place. 
uh, General Lee is considered a first son of the state of Virginia. Many people forget that Robert E. Lee was very troubled to have left the Union Army and to have taken a post in the, the military and the militia, actually, of Virginia during the Civil War. He was very conflicted by that. But people at the time were very allegiant to their state. It was God, family, state, and country in that order. Today, we would never believe that, well, Indiana doesn't feel like uh, uh, going to Afghanistan, so uh, based on states' rights, I'm not going. No, if, if, you, if you're in the military, it's the country goes to war, not your state goes to war. But they didn't see it like that. In fact, 95% of the Confederates that fought the Union, the people that populated those armies, they weren't slave owners. They weren't plantation owners. They were just common folk who were loyal to their states. And if the state decided to go against the Union and secede, well, they were going to fight for states' rights. The, the slavery thing eventually came full circle and became a predominant reason. But you know, a lot of the people on the Union side, they weren't fighting to, to free the slaves either. They were fighting because the southern states wanted to bust up the Union. And when Lincoln came out with his proclamation about freeing slaves that came over to the Union side as conquest went on, uh, there were a lot of Union military that were very upset about that, didn't feel they were in this war, the, the fight for the freedom of slaves. It's a, it's a very confusing time. But the fact that this statue is there in Virginia, in Charlottesville, as one of the first sons of Virginia, generally probably belonged there in many respects. Can I understand today's issues? That somehow this appears that he represented racism? I can understand it, but somebody forgot to educate people, and that's not what that was all about. It really was about a loyal American who had differences based on states' rights. Nothing more, nothing less. And you know, a sociologist some time ago said something that has always stuck with me. Without context, there is no meaning. If you don't have the context for what you're talking about, you can't make any sense out of it. Think about yourself. Think about the future we have. I live my life a certain way as a conservative. I'm a Christian. There's certain things I believe in, certain organizations I donate to. I'm an NRA member. Fifty years from now, will somebody judge me by their standards that they have in 50 years from now and judge me by those standards as I lived them 50 years prior? Probably, but that's a gross abuse of understanding context. Nevertheless, cancel history as a narrative swept the nation over the last uh, three or four years, and we had one twisted tear-down-the-statue event after another. And nobody really understood what these issues were. Now, I can understand tearing down statues of Stonewall Jackson. He was an avowed uh, racist. I mean, there's just no two ways about it. But General Lee in Charlottesville, which also happens to be where 
Thomas Jefferson's homes at leads us to think, well, should we just rip everybody out of our history? None of them have any place in our history. They should all be tucked away in some closet in some museum. I don't know. I have, I'll have more to say on the topic of history and cancel culture later. But let, let's look to some of the words the left uses today. And I'd like to start with the word insurrection. Now go ahead and tax your memory as to when the last time or the first time you've heard the word quote-unquote insurrection. Well, more than likely you're going to think about January 6th, the Capitol Hill incident. That wasn't an insurrection. Insurrection means the overthrow of a government. Those people were, were terrible trespassers and vandals in some respects, but it wasn't an insurrection. And NBC and CNN both in, injected racism into the whole horrible event on top of that. They had anchors saying that had those people that broke into the Capitol that did the vandalism, that did the trespassing, had they been African-American, many of them would more than likely have been killed by the Capitol Police. Because that's how we treat African-Americans in this country. They're different than the white supremacy that's doing these kinds of things. I, I, I have a hard time imagining that most of those people that actually entered into the Capitol were racist, were white supremacists, or anybody but misguided people. There were instigators there. Those were different people. But the people that actually entered, uh, some of them were just got caught up in the whole thing. And, you know, you want to talk about insurrection. You know, the FBI testified just not too long ago to Congress. Open testimony. They confiscated no guns. Not one single gun was confiscated from the people that actually trespassed into the Capitol. It's a pretty strange insurrection <laughs> that you've come to take over the government, but you, you didn't bring any weapons. And the only shots that were fired are the ones that killed Ashley Babbitt. What a tragedy. An Air Force veteran. And yes, I mean, she intended to, to go into the building. I don't know that she vandalized anything or any, any, any but we haven't heard much about this shooting. And we've heard all, all kinds of false narratives about this insurrection in terms of the other people that died. Nobody else died because of this break-in, this mob that entered, other than Ashley Babbitt. And to even scratch your head further, Christopher Ray, the FBI director, testified he, he never read the threat assessment of the January 6th D.C. event. Well, why didn't he? Because it was buried somewhere on his desk. Now, if those people that are responsible for threat assessment believed that there was going to be an insurrection because they had advanced knowledge of that, don't you think they would have been a little more aggressive with uh, planning for an insurrection? Well, we see... Strange language used by the left by Democrats all the time in the title of the bills they want to pass. For instance, H.R. 1, a bill that I'm sure you're, you've been hearing about, you're going to hear a lot more about in the coming, uh, coming weeks. It's called the For the People Act, and it's about federalizing all elections. It's a terrible bill. It's a takeover of uh, uh, elections by Democrats, really. But they call it For the People. Well, it's not a For the People Act. 
if anything, it's a for the Democrats to stay in power in perpetuity act, but it's not a, a for the people act. The COVID-19 relief bill. 9% of this $1.9 trillion has anything to do with COVID in the, even in the most re remote uh, possibilities. They also call it an anti-poverty bill. This is the greatest anti-poverty legislation ever passed. I'm having a hard time understanding how getting a check for $1,400 has turned the course of poverty in our country. And then you just come to the term progressive. You hear this is the biggest progressive bill. This is progressive legislation. The progressives are on the move for this kind of legislation. What What's progressive about big government getting bigger or big government spending more than they possibly can spend or big government uh, changing the, the transgender rules. I, mean, I don't understand what progress, what's progressive about that. Progressive about promoting abortions, it, it, it sort of defies the word itself. And then you have the crisis on the border. It's not a crisis, it's a challenge. Jen Psaki, you know, the press secretary, got in a tiff with the press recently about the word crisis on the border. It's not a crisis. It's a challenge. There used to be a thousand people a day coming across the border, and that was a crisis in past administrations, including the Obama administration. Now we have 5,000, soon to go to 6,000 people a day crossing the border. It still remains a challenge uh, to Joe Biden's administration. And sort of like uh, Cool Hand Luke, you know, uh, Jen claims that uh, what we have here is a failure to communicate. It's really more like a, a failure of communicating the facts. On the other hand, you have John Kerry, who recently told another august body on the world stage that we're in an extraordinary crisis of climate change. We're not in a challenge on climate. We're on an existential, extraordinary crisis on climate. Interesting, interesting use of words. The border detention centers, you'll be glad to know, are being rebranded as reception and welcoming centers. Come on down, just, you know, pass on through um, the use of words. Now to censorship, what's Amazon and eBay doing? Are they really helping shape our national discourse through censorship? eBay banning the sale of six of Dr. Seuss's books, although every other kind of trash, I mean really trash, is available for sale. And it should be. It's our First Amendment rights to have access to this stuff, to read this stuff. For whatever reason, we don't need a reason. It should be there for us to access. Then we have what's gone on on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And I, I can tell you from personal experiences, that's been pretty harrowing. Now, I'm retired, and, and it comes with certain privileges. Um, one of those privileges is that I'm not so worried about what I say on Twitter that somehow in the future I'm not going to be able to get a job because I've tweeted something and in, in it's pro-Trump or that uh, I'm not going to be able to find a date or get a ticket for something at some event I want to go to or whatever. But a lot of people have really been damaged in these sites just trying to say the simplest things. You know, 
recently on Twitter, if you, you put out all lives matter, not just black lives, you got immediately suspended. I've known scores of people that that happened to. Luckily, I'm still on Twitter. I, I lost close to 100,000 followers when Trump was suspended, and I still have uh, quite a few people that help me every day as being part of the rear guard <laughs> and pushing back on so much that's on Twitter. But all the stories about Hunter Biden that, that got deleted, uh, all the stuff that's been put out about COVID and COVID treatments through different uh, pharmaceuticals and the like, that all led to immediate suspensions as if somehow these are the gatekeepers of all information. All of this is cancel culture. Even things that some of us might think are silly, but they're really very important. Like the cancellation of Dr. Seuss's books, like we just mentioned. Or the hullabaloo about Mr. Potato Head. Or Elmer Fudd, the cartoon gun nut. Or Pepe Le Pew, the forerunner of Governor Cuomo, the, the, the womanizer. Speedy Gonzalez, another stereotype somehow. What if cancel culture warned you against using your names or terms of endearment for your loved one? If you, if you use honey or sweetie or dear or darling, are you going to get suspended off of uh, Instagram because those are terms of gender perhaps? What if you're not allowed to use your nicknames or familiar names, shortened ones like Danny or Dan, but you always had to use your formal name in any any dialogue or any postings you put anywhere. Otherwise, you were nixed from the site. You know, another thing that just drove me up the wall, Nancy Pelosi. Nancy Pelosi. And her anti-gender labels. I mean, get me started. You know, she's got this it's a strict prohibition against using certain names of family members. You can't, do, you can't do this on the floor of the house. Big penalties. You can't say father. You can't say mother. You can't say son. You can't say daughter. You can't say stepson, stepdaughter, mother-in-law, father-in-law, niece, nephew, wife, husband. You can't use any of those terms. Or there's penalties. You can't say seamen for sailors. You can't say chairman or chairwoman. You have to say chair. Go ahead and see how many words you need to say something like uh, uh, my non-biologic dependent who is a direct, direct offspring of the individual I'm married to uh, lives with us. You can't just say uh, my, stepson, my stepson lives with us. You're no longer allowed to say founding fathers on the house floor. Founding fathers. Can you believe it? Uh, and then there's Nancy Pelosi's gender neutral rules that go along with this for the 117th Congress. These are actual rules for conduct on the floor. Stiff penalties for not following the rules. A, a breach is considered a violation of the Code of Official Conduct and you will be sanctioned. What nonsense. You know, Pelosi was also the instigator in the 116th Congress demanding permission for people to use your pronouns like I, me, or mine. He had asked permission for that. 
Now, we've been calling, calling this virtue signaling. Virtue signaling. What is that? Virtue is a behavior showing some kind of high moral standard. Well, I don't think that any of this stuff that the left is up to has anything to do with virtue. What high moral standard is there in forbidding someone from saying mother or father? And let's talk about race. Yes, let's talk about race. The left's use of identity politics is all about using race to divide us, to make us question each other's motives based on skin color or ethnicity. They use race to split America, to turn us against each other. Take the terms systemic and systematic racism, for instance. Now think back when you first heard these terms. I posit that it was after George Floyd was killed or died in the hands of the police, any which way you want to look at it. Until then, we hadn't heard the terms systemic racism. And to begin with, this was all aimed at police. There's systemic and systematic racism in every police department across the country, even if a good part of their force is comprised of African Americans or people of color, that somehow there's systemic racism. I, I just had a hard time with that. The, the data didn't really show that. Are there people that are racist in any walk of society? Well, of course there are. But then this talk about white supremacy and white privilege. When, when did that all crop up? I mean, it's, it's just been in the last couple of years. Yeah, I, I knew that the KKK was a white supremacist group. I've never met one. I've never met a white supremacist that I'm aware of. I seriously doubt from everything I've read, they're all that prevalent, but you'd think they're around every corner. And white privilege. I'll tell you, uh, coming from a non-Ivy League undergraduate program, being a white male, I went back to graduate school when I was 37, to get admitted to a doctoral program at Harvard. I didn't think it was all that easy, and I didn't think it had anything to do with white privilege. But I can tell you that I sat on the admissions committee for a couple of years. You'd be surprised at some of the stuff that goes on uh, in the admissions committee, particularly if you are a certain ethnic or racial group. We're replacing white supremacy with black supremacy, with black privilege. Is that happening? I think there's something to be said for that. And I want to share with you in a little bit of personal experience um, that put me, uh, put me into some deep thought about this topic. I have three white sons. You bet I'm worried about them. I'm worried about if they make some post on Twitter that they're a conservative or whatever, that they're a Christian, that they're going to be banned from certain kinds of employment. Oh, I know we have laws against, you know, discrimination in employment based on one's belief. If you don't think there's 50 ways from Sunday to get around that for employers, 
just wait. Yeah, but you'll eventually uh, encounter that. Uh, and, you know, the left's openly talking about uh, canceling people that had anything to do with Trump, not only those that worked uh, for the administration, but anybody who's tweeted or anyone who's given a dollar in that direction or if they catch your face on uh, at one of the rallies or, or whatever, there's all kinds of supposedly people combing all that data now and putting it in some database for future discrimination. Black Lives Matter. Now, this is a real head-scratcher. When did black lives not matter? The, the narrative was is that they didn't matter because they were expendable. Cops shot them all the time. We know from the data that's just not true. You have to remember, they're 13% of the population. They're not 50% of the population. And the data just doesn't back up that, that on average across the country, cops are bad people, they're racist, and they're killing blacks with impunity. You're going to see a trial coming up in, in Minneapolis here pretty soon, which I hope doesn't turn violent and they burn the city down again. But cops are being prosecuted. But Black Lives Matter, in my opinion, is not about blacks. It's about power, pure and simple. So you have to ask, what effect is this having on us as individuals, in, in our families, as citizens and Americans? Well, we're going to take a break now, and when we come back, I want to share with you a very private and personal story. Listen to Malcolm, the voice of a nation, on iHeartRadio or our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. Now, never before in our history have we witnessed the level of hatred that is now being waged against our law enforcement. While anarchist groups create havoc and overwhelm our first responders, these same groups and their corporate supporters are calling for the police forces to be shrunk and defunded. What can you and I do to make a difference? How can we stand up for what is right and to show our support? That's what I'm going to tell you about this incredible new platform. It's called ShopToTheRight.com. It's a new shopping platform that will help you find businesses that align with your values. They feature products made in America. They support veteran-owned businesses as well as our law enforcement community. This is a time when we need to stick together. We need to shop together and we need to support each other. It's time for you and I to make some noise and stand up to protect our country. And one easy way to do that is to shop and give our money to companies that don't seek to destroy our way of life. So join the fight for liberty. ShopToTheRight.com. Support those American businesses that support law enforcement and veterans. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Fighting every day against the cancel culture that wants to silence and erase us. Five years on the air and we will not be silenced. America Out Loud Talk Radio. It's a fight for the soul of humanity. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. 
www.thepetshow.com. I want to share with you a very private, personal story about a recent encounter with race. It was a very subtle encounter, but it, it struck me pretty hard and led to a lot of self, self-review self and self-thought. But before I get into this story, I need to tell you a little bit more about myself so that the story can fit into that context. My family moved to Mesa, Arizona from Indiana when I was seven. Mesa, Arizona was a very small community at the time. It's a wonderful community. It's heavily dominated Mormon community or Latter-day Saints. Uh, Marvelous place to raise kids, very safe city. But I was a Catholic. Our family were Catholic. I went to parochial school, the Queen of Peace uh, Catholic parochial school. I did go to public high school because my parents couldn't afford Catholic high school. Uh, Public school was wonderful. Uh, The best resources in the world. I had a marvelous education there. And I always look back at my time at, uh, in public high school as just as just a wonderful experience. But you know, I didn't fit into any of the youth groups. I didn't get picked right away for a student council. I had difficulties in other areas. It's pretty easy to say that being Catholic and largely of Polish descent, that uh, there was ethnic and religious discrimination. Was it bad? Did I suffer uh, horrible days and nights? No, no, no way. But I know something about discrimination. I don't know what it's like to be black or to be Chinese in America or any of those other things. But uh, I did have some experience with discrimination for a number of years. Mesa, where I grew up, had very few African Americans. We had a lot of Latinos, but very few blacks. My parents never taught any of us, except six siblings altogether, to be colored blind. They just thought that was silly. Obviously, that person is black, that person is uh, brown, you're white. There's a lot of different colors. You don't judge somebody by their color. You judge somebody by how you get along with them, whether they show you respect, whether you show them respect whether you wave and say hello and good morning and whether they wave and say hello back. But that was the way we approached everything. You know, we, we put too much criticism into this aspect of being biased or being discriminatory. Bias and discrimination are important human protective instincts. When you see somebody that is angry, with an angry face, that's cursing at you and coming at you with a bat, the next time you see a person like that, regardless of what color are they are, you have a protective mechanism built in. Where we get carried away is having a bad experience with one person of a race and then generalizing that to all people in the race. Unquestionably, that's a difficult thing that we have to overcome. I thought I had overcome most of that. But you know, there's been so much talk about white supremacy, about white privilege, and about Black Lives Matter, that something happened to me that I wasn't particularly happy with. The story. I have leukemia. This is my second time around with it. Yes, it's life-threatening. Yes, I'm being well cared for by my oncologist, and I'm very optimistic about my future. 
every month I have to go to a hospital-based infusion center where I get eight hours of an IV cancer drug uh, over a slow infusion. This process starts off with you have to go to the pre-infusion center to get your ID bracelet uh, for them to check your temperature, to check your date of birth, and all the other preliminary things. This is all done up in advance, and you walk in, you go to the window, they ask you these questions, you get your ID badge. It's about a 60-second, maybe two-minute procedure, and then you wait for the door to open into the infusion room, and then you enter and you go to your assigned seat. Well, the other day, actually it was about a month ago, uh, come to think of it, that I, I went to the infusion center. This infusion center opens at 8, and people just sort of steadily come in and get assigned. There's never a crowd. But the infusion center window was closed, and there was a sign on there that said, um, we won't open till 8.30 because we're in a staff meeting. Well, the chairs began to fill up in the infusion center as people came in. When I came in, there was just one other lady sitting at a chair. I said good morning, sat down in a socially distanced, appropriate chair. There's a lot of space in this room. And other people began to come in. Uh, about the sixth person in was a rather large African-American woman. She looked around at the seating. There were a lot of empty seats, but there was one seat right next to the window that opens up and you start the whole process. So she took that seat, and I have to admit, the first thing that came to my mind is that this woman is going to jump the line. <laughs> as soon as that window opens, she's, she's going to be right there on the spot. And I, she didn't look anxious. I couldn't f figure any other reason. And I, I didn't really think that had anything to do with her being African-American. She just looked like a, a line jumper, if you will. Well, the room got pretty crowded after a while, and there must have been 30 of us in there waiting for this window to open, and it, and it did. And boy, she was Johnny on the spot up in front of that window as it was opening, and as she jumped up, her iPad fell on the ground and her case busted and flew in a couple of pieces. She quickly gathered it and got right back in front. No one was gonna mess, mess with this lady. And uh, she turned around and said, this, this is only going to take a second. They already have my stuff pre-printed up. And we're all thinking to ourselves, you could just see it, that all our stuff is pre-printed up. I mean, it's, this is just a, you know, what, did you save yourself three minutes by, by jumping the line? It was really sort of confusing. And uh, didn't think another thing of it. And so as people got their badges, they sat back down in their seats because the, the, the infusion room wasn't open yet. It wouldn't be open for another five or ten minutes as these people got out of their um, meetings. So I began to think, is she going to jump up now and get in line in front of the infusion room door before anybody else? Well, we got through about 15 people and pop, she popped up and got in front of that door as if her life depended on being first in line. And as soon as that door opened, boy, she was right down the hall and to her assigned seat. And I turned around and I looked at other people and they were rolling their eyes. And a couple of them were mouthing a few things that 
probably were on my mind too, subconsciously. But um, it really made me wonder whether I had a bias that because she was African-American, she felt entitled. She felt entitled to go in front of everybody. And you know, I think a couple of years ago, before all this stuff started, I'd have never thought that. I would have thought that uh, she's just a line jumper. I mean, some people, there are people like that, you know, they're just totally obnoxious and and you, you don't know what to do about it. But here I am, and I, it, it, I thought through this a couple of days, the thing kept popping up in my mind. Why did I... Why did I think this was going on? Why did I think this had something to do with race? Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. I felt awful about it. But I let that go eventually. And after I'd worn out the the whole idea. And a couple of weeks ago, I'm at the post office. So, So I'm in line again. See, my whole life's about being in line. I think that you could probably identify with that. And um, I'm sixth in line, in a line that's about another 20 or 30 people. I mean, the the post office has been pretty busy where I live. And um, we have quite a bit of space between us because we've all got our masks on, everybody's social distancing. And we're all waiting. Everyone's waiting to see which of these two clerks, what you know, who's going to free up first, and that's who's going to go to that, and what you're going to say, and how much money you're going to have to pull out, and... And another African-American woman walks down the line. She walks right up to the front and stands in front of the next person in line. And she says, I hope you don't mind, but my daughter's in the car, and I need to get this done right away. (laughs) Of course, he didn't give her any trouble. She's fine, absolutely fine, you know. It's like that's the person who you have to ask permission of. The rest of the people in line don't count. Uh, (laughs) They're all second-class people. But... You know, people turned sideways, people looked at each other, and the eyes rolled again. And I wondered, am I in another situation, or is this just coincidence? And it probably is just coincidence. This is another person who's more important than everybody else, and you ought to just leave it at that, and it, your life is going to go on. Not, you know, don't pay it any attention. It is not worth the grief. But it crossed my mind once again. Is this a person that feels entitled? And are other people going to start thinking this way too? And isn't that where it all festers when we begin to doubt each other? That not only do we ascribe motives to them that are just uncivil, but that are also racial. Because there is such a thing as reverse discrimination. With the left, everything's about race. And it's a terrible thing that they're doing with all the talk about how white America has done all these bad things to black America and that somehow they're due a break. Well, that's my story about black America here in Clearwater, Florida. But um, let's talk about defund the police. What's that all about? It's all about alleged systemic racism that somehow the funds that are going to support the police, to employ the police, to protect us all, ought to be going to socioeconomically disadvantaged African Americans and people of color, other than to police, whose job isn't to be social workers, but it is to protect us. 
In the last several months, it's estimated we've lost more than 4,000 police that are no longer on the street. They've retired early. They're not hiring in some of these places. And we've seen this reverse trend now, like even in Minneapolis, where they're hiring people back because they found crime was escalating. I don't know if you know this, but the defense secretary, Lloyd Austin, who's an African-American four-star general, was selected to be our defense secretary because the left was very concerned about putting another white general in that role because they believed that there was an awful lot of white supremacy and white supremacy types activities going on amongst those in uniform at the moment. And they wanted to make sure they had somebody to ferret this stuff out, but somebody who would have the chain of command and would not allow the military to pull a coup on the current government. Now, there's been a number of uh, reports of this uh, in, in noted newspapers and the likes uh, about the background and, and, and how they all talked about the transition government. I'm just blown away that this even came up, <laughs> that anybody would even talk about anything like that. I've, it's, there's nothing in our, in our facts, in our culture, or anything else that, that would suggest this, but it goes along with the theme of what they're doing at the Capitol now. Eight-foot fencing, razor wire, and 6,000 uh, military uh, troops surrounding the Capitol. You can't even get in the place now. They're hard enough, hard enough time if you're actually a member of Congress. How ridiculous. We have all this walls are immoral and all this stuff going on at the border. I, I have an easier time crossing into Mexico and then crossing back without my passport than I have that I would have getting in to see anybody in the Capitol right now. I mean, that's, it's just how twisted backward it is. And it's all the cancel culture and censorship and lies that are being told by the left using our language to talk about their fear of an insurrection, the fear of white supremacy, the fear of subversive elements like Trumpers. What about African males, uh, Afri African American males being hunted uh, by police, that they shoot and ask questions later? Have you seen any of that go on in, in your area? Uh, I, I mean, there are incidents that come up; they're immediately blown up, and later on we find out there's more to the story. Affirmative action, you know, affirmative action doesn't exist any longer, technically. It's been replaced by something called positive discrimination. <laughs> positive discrimination. Positive discrimination is the same thing as affirmative action. That somebody has decided to discriminate against you and put someone of color in a position, and that's seen as positive toward promoting diversity. But it's no longer called affirmative action because there's been too many court actions that have struck down affirmative action uh, as a procedure to diversify our workplaces and schools and other kinds of stuff. I can't even imagine looking for a job now and saying, dear, I, I didn't get the job, but don't feel bad about it because I was positively discriminated against. What a play on words, huh? Diversity training. 
every this is the rage now. If you're a diversity trainer, which by the way you have to be a person of color, you can't be white doing diversity training because you don't know what you're talking about. Uh, we've got critical race theory, we got critical gender theory, we got critical immigration theory. It's just a lot of a lot of malarkey, as some people would say, some person would say, with all of this stuff. I have a positive discrimination story that I witnessed in Boston to tell you later if we, could, if we have the time. You see that Stacey Abrams is now have, has people working on, uh, on whether she should be nominated for a, an Oscar for her performance about uh, reversing voter suppression in Georgia, voter suppression of African Americans, that is, in the last election because of all the groundwork she did. Uh, the voter suppression is really voter adventurism. This business about photo IDs is, is a total myth. You know, there are numerous polls supporting voter IDs among African Americans and minorities. Nearly 80% of them agree that to vote, you should have a photo ID. We've talked about photo IDs before. Who doesn't have one? Well, who have you seen come forward on television, on radio, or any other format and said, I I'm poor, and I'm out, and I'm living in a box, and I don't have a voter ID? Usually those are the people that are living on the streets in Los Angeles and the likes. They don't have any kind of ID. But it's not, it, 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 nothing's holding them up from getting a voter ID if they really decide to want to go and vote. I'm sure you've heard, uh, too, the recent Meghan Markle interview with uh, Oprah Winfrey and how she injected racism into her interview with Oprah, that the royal family was concerned about the color of Archie, whether he was going to be light-skinned or dark-skinned. Everywhere you turn around, Somebody's pointing to race and, and some bias, some heinous activity that somebody's up to because of race. Biden and the Democrats are setting up a committee to explore slave, slavery reparations. Uh, you know, uh, they're determined to go forward with this. How they're going to figure this out, I haven't a clue. You know, in 1865, there were only 24 million Americans. Today, we're a nation of 334 million there, thereabouts. Uh, most of our families weren't even here in the late to mid-1800s. It's going to be a head-scratcher. The New York Times, of course, their Project 1619, is a gross perversion of American history. The 1619 project, or Project 1619, is one of the most perverse narratives told by the left, and it's being taught as curriculums to our sons and daughters, our grandchildren, throughout our nation's schools. It's in every, this curricula is in every, every one of the 50 states in nearly in 6,000 different classrooms. And it says America's greatness was founded on the back of slavery, that it's America's dirty cover-up of an original sin. Now, Biden canceled the 1776 curriculum that Trump had instituted in response to the left 1619 project. So where are we? We have a curriculum that's being taught that says 
systemic racism, racism in America is, is rampant. And we have to do something about it by educating everyone. Now, unquestionably, this is an overly sensitive and, and quite controversial subject. But, but in response, I have never found any evidence that America's foundation was built on slavery. Let me give you, just give a few facts. This is the left's, by the way, foundational curricula supporting why we owe descendants of former slaves reparations. For a grievous wrongs, unquestionably, these were grievous wrongs, but they were done mostly by Democrats, not that many Democrats, because it was only the plantation owners that had slaves. The regular, the regular Southerner didn't know anything about slavery, didn't have slaves, didn't own slaves, never wanted to own slaves. And this was 160 years ago. Slavery did not build this nation. And our constitutional America didn't start with the first slave on North American soil in 1619. Now, as I've said in other broadcasts, uh, the American Indian tribes practiced slavery across warring tribes long before any Europeans showed up on these shores. Somehow we have forgotten that. In 1860, at the height of slavery in America, there were 3.9 million slaves. Even if you rounded up to 4 million, we were a nation of 24 million. That's about 16% of the population were slaves. Totally unconscious. It's a horrible thing. Today, African Americans are about 13% of our population. But, but who would claim that America's foundation and progress today is being maintained by 13% of any population, be they the Irish, the Germans, the Poles, the Chinese, many of them who helped build our ra railroads as indentured servants in, in Northern California. 98% of African-American slaves were in the agrarian South in the 1860s. They were cruelly and immorally employed to farm cotton. Uh, cotton was important in 1860, but it wasn't king. It wasn't how the nation was built. We didn't build this nation on cotton. My review of the facts shows that Americans in 1860, our, our America in 1860, was, was really built by the industrial north and entrepreneurs taking risks. Beside this business about reparations, which is constantly being pushed and is being pushed more all the time, to go ahead, put, put reparations into Google and see what you, you scare up. It, it's amazing. And this also doesn't take in consideration we fought a hellacious civil war where 620,000 Americans were killed. That's more than all the other wars we fought. On top of that, uh, nearly a half million, 475,000 were wounded. 36% of these sustained a loss of one or more limbs. I'd say that was a hell of a price to pay. We're lucky that it came out the way it did, and that the Union prevailed, that slavery was abolished, and that we have continued to make progress towards civil rights ever since then. I'm a very strong believer in all the civil rights legislation to date. But the majority on both sides, Confederates and the Union troops, they weren't fighting about slavery. They were fighting about whether the Union was going to exist or whether the Confederacy was going to be established 
according to their definition of states' rights, which they felt the Union wouldn't allow them to do whatever they wanted to do. You know, this isn't the only time during the Civil War that states threatened to secede from the Union. There was a big rift that went on in the early 1800s about tariffs that the federal government was charging for certain imports that somehow that hurt the South because they had to import more expensive goods from Europe because there were tariffs on them because they didn't have an industrial base in the South. And South Carolina, uh, South Carolina threatened to secede over that. So this isn't the first time all this rift between southern states and northern states came up. Well, all races and ethnic groups, they, they certainly make up America's rich tapestry. I mean, let's keep it that way and avoid blaming people for a, a, a far distant past. Well, our time is short and we're coming to a close, but I'd like to read uh, to you a short Dr. Seuss-like rhyme that I saw the other day. Forget cancel culture. I think it's a sham. I do not like it. Uncle Sam I am. Ignoring achievements in the name of the woke and cause more division with the fires they stoke. Take history out of context is now the new game. Not looking for justice, just someone to blame. Today it's a book, so watch what you do. One day in the future, they may come for you. In closing, let me say we live in an America of intolerance for conservatives, masked by tolerance for all. Remember, Joe Biden wants to unite America, and he will if you see things the way the left sees them. This way, Joe can maintain his delusion of being our American president. I'm Daniel Francis Baranowski, and it's been a pleasure being here with you for this short hour. America is only as strong as our free voices allow us to be. That's why this network is called America Out Loud. Hear our voices and use your voices to celebrate this flagship of American freedom. <laughs>